0: Hello and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. As many listeners to the show will know, I travel the world hosting conferences, speaking at many, many different events about diversity and inclusion, about the world of financial services and also technology and on my travels i get to meet some amazing people it is a great pleasure today to be sitting in the offices of flamingo ai talking to dr katrina Wallace. let me tell you a little bit about katrina based between the us and australia dr katrina wallace is the founder and executive director of the artificial intelligence fintech and asx listed company flamingo ai And Flamingo AI is the second only woman-led business ever to list on the Australian Stock Exchange. Katrina has been recognized by the Australian Financial Review as the most influential woman in business and entrepreneurship, and achieved Advance Australia's highest award in technology and innovation. She has a PhD in organizational behavior, technology substituting for human leaders, and she was recently inducted into the Royal Institution of Australia, acknowledging her as one of Australia's most preeminent scientists. Katrina is one of the world's most cited experts and speakers on artificial intelligence, customer experience, ethics and human rights in technology, and is also a philanthropist human rights activist and a mother of five. And Katrina, thank you so much for being on the show. Julia, such a pleasure. So I I have so much to talk to you about because uh, we uh, had the great joy of being on stage doing a fireside chat at the Women in Payments Conference in Sydney. And uh, there were many things that we were beginning to talk about. And in our preparation, I was really fascinated in your conversation around the importance of diversity in artificial intelligence and technology. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about why diversity and inclusion really matters. Sure. Look, a good place to start is just to identify what we're talking about when we
1: talk about artificial intelligence. So in its most simplest term, artificial intelligence software that mimics human intelligence, if it's able to learn on its own accord each time it does a task, we call that machine learning. And this is now the most fastest growing tech sector in the world so $38 billion invested in it, and it's likely to be replacing 40% of administrative and service entry-level jobs within the next five years. So it's the time now that we call the fourth industrial revolution where things are fundamentally going to change. AI has been likened to the same as when electricity came to the industrial era or, in fact, fire was invented. So this is profound, and when we're thinking about how it's been made and who's making it, we start to see that there may be a few cracks in this otherwise quite utopian dream of the robots coming and helping us humans do more things. So some of the, the challenges we're starting to see is in fact that when we look at who's coding the algorithms that will be running our lives, we see that there's less than 10% of machine learning artificial intelligence high-tech engineers who are female. So it's 90 per cent male coders and predominantly younger male coders. So we might start to think there's a bit of a challenge in diversity in teams. However, that's not really the biggest problem. What the problem is, is actually the diversity in the data and the way that the algorithms are being trained to behave. So what we do know already is that The data sets that are historical data sets that are used to train AI and machine learning tools are representing what the past of humankind was. And it's actually not that favorable. It's not a great thing that we just take data that represents some of the biases that we already have. So, for example, in the largest data set in the world that's used to train most big machine learning algorithms, it's called ImageNet. It is plagued with all types of language and categorization. Uh, Some examples of this is um, when it does image recognition, it um, it pulls up uh, photos of middle-aged men uh, who are single and classifies them as as widowers. Uh, It pulls up photos of young women and classifies them as man traps. So it's got this already uh, inherent bias and these massive data sets that have been coded by either well-intentioned or otherwise humans that may or may not be aware of their own bias. Hmm. So, so the bottom line is the data sets that we're using to train the machines that will run our world are full of bias, and that's a real problem.
0: So, so what can we do about it? Do we need to, I mean... Is it, is, it about, is, Professor, is it about awareness in terms of the construction of these data sets and, and do you see a shift in, in awareness that this needs to be addressed
1: so yes the, the awareness of what artificial intelligence machine learning is in the general population or even with business leaders is still very low in fact my experience in working across uh, large companies across the world is that the higher up you go in these organizations the less the leaders actually know about artificial intelligence. And certainly at the board and executive level, there's very limited knowledge of of what AI is. So awareness is a a big factor. Uh, It's also a real challenge because the people who are coding the machines are engineers. They're not statisticians. And even if they're a data scientist, they might be a mathematician who can code, but they're not statisticians. So those of us who are statisticians, actually know how to clean data sets and run statistical tests to make sure the data sets are clean and absence of any skewed data or bias before we use them to train the algorithms of the machines. But this this craft has been lost in modern world when there's pressure on the vendors, pressure on organisations to be building AI and be building it quickly. What is the incentive for us to make sure that the data is without bias? There's, there's very little. And there's also... Complete absence of laws and
0: regulation around this topic. Well, because I know that's one of the things you've been thinking about is is where does the governance come in? Not only sort of in house within the organisations with those coders and hopefully statisticians <laughs> tackling the challenge, but also the outside world. So it, you know, we live in a time where everybody wants to collaborate. We all want to open APIs, and we all want to kind of um, you know uh, be able to have our data flowing seamlessly from outside our organisations into the next. Um, But I know you've been thinking about governance and collaboration.
1: Right. So I'm working very closely here in Australia with the Minister for Technology and also the Human Rights Commissioner. And we've just put together, and the government has announced a human rights and ethics framework for artificial intelligence, as well as an AI roadmap for Australia. Now, that's great, but it is A guideline. It is not a rule, it's not a regulation, there's nothing that's going to require an organisation to do this or behave in this way. So right now as an AI vendor, someone whose company makes AI, there's no rules, there's no laws that govern how we do it. There's nobody who checks our data, nobody who checks our algorithms, there's no certification, there's nothing. So we as the entrepreneurial community estimate that we're about five years ahead of any rule or regulation that's relevant to where we are. And by the time if we rely on government to be regulating this field, by the time they catch up, we'll be another five years ahead anyway. So I feel now with emerging tech, and this is probably not just AI, although it's the the fastest, biggest sector, it will also be cryptocurrency, cybersecurity, blockchain, internet of things, also very advanced technologies where the the law and regulations are, are, are well behind. So will government lead us through this to make sure we have good ethical AI? Probably not. They'll give it a good try, but it won't really... They don't really have teeth yet. Uh, Will it be the general community and public? Well, they they know very little about it. It really comes to business leaders, and I don't even think business executives. I think it's uh, senior management, middle management, uh, good leaders, informal opinion leaders within business who recognise that we must do this or else things could be quite dire. And and what might be cool, uh, Julia, is if we maybe just, I get, to illustrate what bias AI is to have your listeners understand it. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking yeah, yeah. about this. It kind of sounds like it's a thing. Um, so there's a couple of cool things that um, I encourage listeners to do. So one of them is to Google the term unprofessional hairstyles and hit... Images and then just scroll down through and have a look what's there. Then do professional hairstyles. Hit images, scroll down. Could do best CEOs in the world, best most intelligent people in the world. Uh, professor style is another good one because I've got an academic background. I'd love to mm-hmm. see how uh, how Google actually presents itself uh, as what professors are. And going through this, and I'll let your audience do that because it's kind of cool and scary, what we learn is that these machines are already racist misogynists. It, it really is disturbing what you find that the machines are classifying like this. So there's some simple examples of bias in AI. There's other examples where algorithms and AI is, are used by judges in court to determine the chance of an offender reoffending and so when they come in front of the judge the algorithm provides them a score and then the person is accordingly sentenced now what those algorithms were trained on is historical crime data which had a much higher skew to men of color and so whenever a man of color came in front of a judge he would automatically the judge would be given by the ai a much higher score the person would be sentenced to a much higher sentence mm-hmm. this stuff is going on every day in our world now without people being aware of it Mm -hmm. is it going to be the law very slow is it going to be senior business leaders also don't really understand it it must be we as business leaders
0: starting Mm -hmm. to think about this Mm -hmm. and and what are you you particularly optimistic about as you look ahead and say okay so that's the challenge that's the reality Uh, in terms of fixing that and improving that what, what are you really optimistic about well
1: there's two things i'm optimistic about let me start with saying that I, what i'm optimistic about ai and we really most of us ai philosophers and thinkers think 50 percent of it's going to go really well and 50 percent of it's going to go terribly badly and so let me start on the optimistic side mm-hmm. what i think will go really well so there is some beautiful beautiful ai apps for social causes and i'll give you some examples so One of the heads of product at Samsung had an autistic teenage boy and he had Samsung fund him to build a virtual assistant for autistic children for when they were going to university. So imagine, if you will, on your phone, you wake up in the morning and there's a virtual assistant greets you and says, hey, Julia, um, today these are your lectures. Here's the bus that you need to get on. Make sure you have breakfast before you go here's the professor, here's some tips and you know, some good things to say to your professor, here's the bus that you'll be catching on your way home. We'll let your mother know that you're on the way home so she knows you're safe. And you use that app, that AI virtual system, to guide yourself through your day at university. How would the parents feel about that? You know, it's just mm. so beautiful. Mm. How would you, as, as a child um, with autism, feel more confident in how you'll navigate the day? Fabulous. There's another app called Seeing AI, which is an app that narrates the world for people with sight impairment or blind. Mm-hmm. So they would have a, a listening device, an, an ear pod perhaps, and as they're walking, the app will describe what they're walking past, describe the colours, describe what people are doing, describe the landscape, how beautiful and stunning. Yeah, amazing. And enabling, massively enabling. Completely. There is an app, an AI app for domestic violence that's disguised as an app on a person who's suffering domestic violence um, device, and it records and collects data and provides that data to legal support, so whether it's to the police or uh, legal counsel, Mm -hmm. so that the person who's suffering domestic violence doesn't have to collect all that data and make phone recordings, etc., um, a beautiful assistant to someone who may be suffering terribly. Mm-hmm. Uh, another gorgeous one is called Child Tracker. This was released in India It's using facial recognition technology to identify missing children. Within the first three days it was launched, 2,930 children who were missing were identified um, across India. Amazing, so amazing, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. How, how extraordinary, yeah. what an extraordinary yeah. humanity we're faced with if we can have... The robots and machines help us do those things.
0: And and we think a lot in financial services about, um, obviously about payments, and we think about uh, financial inclusion and begin to think about um, actually how that unlocks potential for particularly thinking about people with disability perhaps, uh, and their ability to uh, engage with financial services in a very confident way. And, and it's just incredibly enabling to be able to do that, which is which is extraordinary. So, um, so I'd love to move on. Thank you for the insights around uh, AI. It, it is interesting, this, this conversation around um, governance and data and how that's going to sort of change in time and the role of business in terms of really being aware of the biases that exist within it. Um, I don't want to move naturally on the word bias however you know you were one or two organizations that are female-led that listed on the australian stock exchange i mean that must have been a, a fascinating journey to to capital raising you know getting getting listed and all the advisors that come around you and and looking at the world of capital markets so i'd love to hear some of your stories from that journey right yes yeah, so uh
1: at the time we listed which was November 2016 I had a female chair Kathy Reed who's just the most incredible um businesswoman and much to our great surprise we learned that we were the second only woman-led business to list on the on the ASX which is which is staggeringly uh disturbing actually mm-hmm. but now that I've been in the capital markets I can kind of see why it's it's a what I regard as a hyper-masculine environment. So I see very little diversity in the capital markets. It's predominantly um, males, uh, middle-aged males, predominantly white males, who are the funds managers, the investments managers, the stockbrokers, etc. So it is quite, it's been quite a journey to actually have investors understand how we as women run businesses and how we might do it a little bit differently, how we present which might be a bit differently and of course we know that it's enormously difficult for women historically to raise capital, Mm -hmm. Uh, less than 2% of all venture capital globally goes to women-led businesses. Um, So we've actually been quite effective on raising capital on on the uh, public market, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it doesn't come without its its um, great difficulties, and indeed, I, I have some great. I was stories. going to say, could,
0: could you share some Wall stories? Could you could you yeah, talk us through a few? Yeah. So the the
1: <laughs> the most interesting one was uh, very early in the piece when we Kathy and I went and we did some like uh, roadshow investor roadshow, and we were down in Melbourne and we were presenting to a group of investors, and we we're on on our way back flying back to Sydney. And one of their directors got a call and he said, oh, wow, uh, someone's wanting to invest a million dollars in the business. And we said, great, that's fantastic. That's and a good call to have. Good call to have. Yeah. We're very happy. We've obviously done very well. And then the um, the board member, I could just see his like blood draining out of his face. And he said, uh, okay, there's a condition. What's the condition? And he said, oh, Katrina, they've got a condition. I said, of course, you know, of course. What is it, revenue or reducing the burn or reducing cost of customer acquisition, what, what might it be? And he said, no, no, look, it's, it's none of those, it's none of those things. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, what else is it? And he said, ah oh, well, this investor will invest a million dollars into the business if the female CEO takes her nose ring out. So a million dollars into the business if the female CEO
0: removes
1: her nose ring that will warrant that level of investment
0: and did they become an investor like <laughs> i know the answer to this question before we begin no no, <laughs> Never no be. in fact i had a yeah. smaller
1: nose ring mm-hmm. i went the
0: next day and got it like a really big one and i mean imagine if you had said yes i mean the, the implications of having somebody have that degree of Control and command over something, and then what kind of investor they would end up being as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, incredible. I you know other sort of. It, 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 I hear a lot of these stories. In fact, in the UK, Alison Rose, who's now the CEO of RBS, um, commissioned the Rose Review, which looked at uh, uh, the amount of capital that goes into female red uh, female run organisations. As a female entrepreneur myself, you know, I kind of understand that entirely. And uh, and I'm wondering whether the, again, is the world shifting? I do. You, I know you spend time with other. Uh, women-led businesses and and sort of mentorship and helping others to to move on that journey? It is shifting, but
1: in the most marginal way, not not anywhere near the speed it should or what we predicted. And a very wise feminist in Australia um, quoted that it never really gets over 17% of anything. Women, We just don't get above 70% on boards, we don't get anywhere near 70% of capital, we don't get to be 70% of the jobs. Uh, we don't, we're just not seeing the numbers move. Now, certainly in Australia, the number of women on boards is increasing and that, that has had some movement. Uh, the number of women-led businesses is in- increasing. The capital going to women marginal in- increases. I think it's moved to just below three percent now, but they, we're just not we're just not winning the goals that we expected to by now. Mm-hmm. It's still a very tough road. And what and what do you think will drive change? So there needs to be, I, I talk about a shift towards women of power and the good men, and so you noted in my introduction that I was uh, a woman of influence. So I went when I got this um, acknowledgement. I went and looked at well, what are the men's awards? So it's the women of influence and the men of power. And I went, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. What does influence mean? Mm-hmm. Influence means the ability to indirectly affect change, and power is the ability to directly affect change. So why am I? Why can I only influence, and the male counterpart can directly change things? That's not okay. So I'm all around starting to champion women into positions of power where they are absolutely able to make the cause and direct change. And to support that movement, we need what we call the good men. Mm -hmm. And so the good men are those men who recognise that diversity and inclusion is an essential means and path to a healthy humanity. I've already quoted today about some of the things that are going to go very badly, Um, you know, imagine who's designing the autonomous AI-driven weapons at the moment. You know, those sorts of things are very frightening. So we need men who can do a couple of things uh, in the workplace and, and in, in community. And that is that they can hold the space for women. So when there's a woman in a room, if a woman's trying to speak, that they hold the space so the woman is able to speak in her way and she's not corrected, she's not shut down, she's not mansplained too, that they can hold the space that they may indeed amplify what she's saying by either encouraging her to, to speak more or picking up a point that she's made and then making it again. We need men who are supporting and championing women into these roles and we need men to be calling out the biases and the unfairness that they see and we also need men to understand themselves. So in a, in, in a sort of primal sense, there's two things that go on for men men and women Uh, women have an innate fear that men will hurt or kill them men have an innate fear that women will ridicule or laugh at them and so these primal things that are are at play during performance reviews during is this woman more powerful than me is this woman going to laugh at me Uh, is this woman going to be promoted ahead of me all of these things where there's a, a sense of threat men just need to be aware of what comes up in them from their sort of primal self or their conditioned self and be able to deal with those and to start to really see women in their true right and for the true value that they, they bring to a workplace and that we have a rightful place at the table in in positions of power. Mm-hmm.
0: And if we um, sort of think back to the, the conversation we were having on stage yesterday, one of the things that really struck me was uh, in addition to the relationship with men, you know, the good men who are calling out and they go through their own career paths, their own career journeys. One of the things we're thinking about a lot on the podcast at the moment is that that sort of hiring manager management level is kind of splitting out into those who are completely agnostic and, and actually still don't get the diversity joke in terms of high performing teams. And, and But that is shifting, is my opinion. Uh, The second is those who feel very threatened by that and feel blamed for it. And those who are very positively engaging exactly as you've described. Um, And and in order to kind of uh, to address the group that feels most threatened is the way in which female career journeys and male career journeys uh, run in parallel very differently, but also begin to intersect as well. And I know you've, you've got some fascinating thoughts around that um, that kind of female career journey which I'd love to hear you know, for you to share with the, the listeners. Mm, mm. So the heroine's journey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, my
1: partner's name is Dr. Arna Rubinstein and he's a world expert on rites of passage for men. And my son, Hunter Johnson, runs a program uh, called The Man Cave. And he his two greatest champions are actually um, Harry and Megan. And... Um,
0: Royalty, our uh-huh.
1: uh-huh. royalty. are <laughs> yours too. Yes. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Hunter works in redefining masculinity for for teenage boys and and what uh, mental health as a result of redefined masculinity. So it's okay. so beautiful. So I'm surrounded yeah, right. yeah. by men who work in this area of what is the masculine journey. So then I've start encouraged by both of these men to start to look at what is the heroine's journey, what is the female's journey, and this is what we've learned so far. So the heroines journey starts out, uh, we as young women, with something called the separation from the feminine. So this is, as we are small girls, we may like to play with with dolls and ponies and fairies and pixies, but very soon, probably mid-primary school, we recognise that those things are not really valued by society and the things that our fathers are doing or the boys are doing are regarded more highly or rewarded. And the fact that our mothers might be, even if they are working, they're still doing things at home, carer-type duties, and we don't really recognise that those things are rewarded in society. So we start this separation from the feminine and we start to identify with the masculine. And so we then, um, early teenage years, start to think, oh, what's my career going to be? What are the goals that I want to achieve? What education do I want? Um, What's going to pay me well? Do I need a husband? Do I need a family? And we start these type of goal setting and start to achieve those things that we think society regards as successful, which are much more strongly associated with the masculine archetype than the feminine archetype. So we go separation with the feminine, identify with the masculine, then we get to a certain time, and this is very interesting because I think it also relates to that time we know that women start to keel off from the workforce and leadership mm-hmm. positions in their 30s and 40s. So now it's a time called the illusion of success. So we as women have got to a certain level, we've got the house, we've got the car, we might have children, we've got the job, we've got the degree, and we in all are successful. However, we start to realise that there's something missing, that that success doesn't feel as good as we thought. It's hollow. And so what the phase next on the heroine's journey is what we call the spiritual aridity. So we start going, okay, I just don't feel this. I'm not really finding meaning or purpose in what I'm doing. And the next step from there is what we call the descent to the goddess, which is actually tracking back to our true feminine womanhood. And that might be some women take themselves off on a retreat, some women find themselves sitting around with candles and aromatherapy going, who am I and how did I get here and why am I not fulfilled or happy? What is it that I'm missing because I've ticked all the boxes? But what on the heroine's journey has been missing is that is the complete separation from the feminine archetype. So the next phase after descent to the goddess is yearning for the feminine. And that's where you see these big groups of women networking groups, you see the women wanting to go on on uh, retreats and holidays together and women start to yearn for the sisterhood and to connect back to their womanhood. And the next phase from that is what we call the mother repairing or healing of the mother-daughter split. So that's not necessarily your own biological mother or your own biological daughter, but it's the healing of your original womanhood and the daughter that separated and went off to do the masculine journey comes back and goes actually as a woman now I want to be whole and so I I integrate the mother-daughter and I heal that and I value things that are feminine. I value things that are womanly and then the final bit is then in the integration of self. So in a, in a dualistic way, we say that's integration of the masculine and feminine. I'm moving a bit away from everything having duality, being masculine and feminine. I think there's probably shades mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That, that are not masculine mm-hmm. and feminine, but it is that integration of self. So by the time we've gone through the full cycle of the heroine's journey, we are strong, we are whole, we are integrated and we're no longer splitting off into the masculine and the feminine, and we're no longer denying the feminine self. It is there, strongly represented in, in who we are.
0: And I think it's very interesting when you think about um, personal identity and when you think about LGBTQI uh, uh, inclusion and people on their journey of finding themselves through how they identify whether it's more masculine or more feminine. So it's, really, it's a really, it's that's what really caught my attention when you were sort of first talking through that the um, that journey, is um, that it's not a binary. It's, it, it's 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 partly the male journey, it's partly the masculine journey, it's partly the feminine journey, but actually the two of them right come down to the whole and the individual and the self right. But and but but uh, it, in a different lens from the way in which we have been brought up and taught historically
1: right. And I think if we look at sort of the gender kind of spectrum, there'll be plenty of men listening to mm-hmm. what we just talked mm-hmm. about who've said, actually, I can relate to all of that yeah. myself um, or any gender. I, I, I mean, We talk about masculine and fem- feminine, but I think it, it is beyond that. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the heroine or hero's journey or any other type of journey, it's it's a cycle. And, uh, and you saw how the women that we spoke to reacted yesterday. Absolutely, yeah. When Mm. they kind of start to identify, oh, I'm not alone. The fact that I've just felt these things doesn't mean that I'm failing or that I'm the only one feeling this. In fact, we probably had the whole room who could relate to some of those yeah, things.
0: Yeah, and what was fascinating afterwards, because it wasn't just an all-female audience as well, was actually had some fascinating conversations with the men in the room as well, who were uh, you know beginning in uh, in part it was an early the first time they'd heard the conversation, but in parts to begin to resonate some of that began to resonate with them, which is which is amazing. Um, it's been the most incredible conversation. I can't believe how time disappears on these podcasts. Um, I, I suppose my next question, my sort of final question, really is. Um, Uh, As we sit here in Sydney, and it is really interesting, I I mean I flew in, this is being recorded in November, I flew in a week ago with news about bushfires, Uh, you know, all over the press I was getting WhatsApp messages from home saying, you know, what's it like, what's it like? And as we sit here today, it is a smoky day in Sydney. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. I was thinking this morning as I, as I left where I was staying, I'm thinking that there is smoke in the air, you know, in, in maybe it, 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 it wafts in, it wafts out, but it's, it's definitely, most definitely here. Um, and we, obviously we think about artificial intelligence, we think about the role of technology and of course the reality of where we are today. And I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on, you know, what comes next and, and what, what are the big thoughts in your head at the moment?
1: right well if we we think about the three major world challenges that there are today and the things that are likely to threaten humanity one is nuclear war and we've never been at a closer time in history to nuclear war than we are today do we talk about this not really should we absolutely Mm -hmm. number one nuclear war number two is climate change and we have pretty good dialogue about climate change And the third one is the arrival of disruptive technologies. These are the three things that are likely to destroy the world. So I have had an experience recently where we have a family property in New South Wales, a 10,000 acre farm that we've had in the family for over 50 years. And right now, uh, 90% of that farm has been destroyed with the fires. And in fact, the fires now there's more than 2 million hectares of fires burning in New South Wales, much greater than the Amazon jungle that recently burnt and the whole world um, was up in arms around that. Our fires are far, far greater. Fire season has come a, year, a month earlier. We've had the same level of intensity of the last three years fire seasons all within a month. So it is a disaster. And so my personal experience with this now with being up at the farm, Um, in front of the flames, seeing the animals that are destroyed, the the native animals, the cattle, um, the the shelters that have been destroyed has really got me thinking profoundly about we must put two of those world challenges together and we must start to get emerging technologies dedicated to climate change and to um, reducing the effects or mitigating the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. I first-hand experienced this and it was like being in a, apocalypse it was a deathly feeling that the earth was dying and that's not okay
0: no absolutely Uh, it has been the most incredible conversation we i've had the privilege of spending some time with you while i've been here in sydney uh recording in november 2019 and to to have this conversation in such an intimate setting is in the boardroom of your office with my iPad recording, but also on stage in front of hundreds of guests at the conference yesterday. Um, I can never tire of hearing you talk with such passion about technology, about talent, about business models, and then also thinking very profoundly about the future. Katrina, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Street's Productions. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app, And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.